Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Ben. So glad you're here on Father's Day. I'm sorry that Hope Church isn't really a place you can wear your new tie you got. Is that what they still do for Father's Day? Are we going to tie this morning from your children? No? Yeah, because you don't wear them anywhere else either. I've got like one. It's not been used in a long time. But we're glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here on Father's Day on our continued summer through the Psalms. Uh, we said it summer in the Psalms, and we knew that it would be summertime while we were in the Psalms, but we'll probably be out of the Psalms pretty soon, uh, even though the summer will continue. But what we're doing with the Psalms is we're hoping to have them be what they are. They're pretty. They're definitely pretty, but they're also useful. I didn't get to use this illustration in the first service because Rachel was sitting right there, but the Psalms are like Rachel. They're pretty, but they're also useful. They're not just for looking at. Uh, She does all kinds of stuff. My world will fall apart without all the stuff that she does. And the Psalms are the same way. You cannot go to the Psalms and just read poetry. Of course you can. But there's so much more than that because the Psalms are written by different individuals inspired by the Holy Spirit to give you the truth that you and I need. And it is truth. It's not just fanciful. It's not just an artful thought. It's truth. And because it's truth, we can go to the Psalms and we can have our human experience reflected back to us from God's perspective. There's Psalms where people are weeping over the hard things that God's allowed in their life. There's Psalms where people are rejoicing over the amazing things that God's done in their life. And yet, through it all, We're being led. We're being led towards what God has for us. And at Hope Church, we're we're not content with where things are. In Hope Church or beyond Hope Church. The world that we see beyond the walls of Hope Church is not something that we're just fine with. It's something that we want to get in and change. We want to monkey with it. We want to make it nicer. We want to make it more lovely. We want it to reflect more fully God's original vision. And current vision for what the world can be. But to do that, we gotta we gotta start here. We we started this series with a quote that talks about the, the kind of opposite perspective of what a lot of us have. A lot of us think that the world's against us. Therefore, what can we do? As a church, we can only do what we can do, and man, man, you look at everything that's arrayed against us, I think we should be patted on the back for trying as hard as we have. Hmm. Uh, Maybe. The pastor I quoted, though, he was talking about how no matter what you see around you, the obstacle to your effectiveness is you. It starts with you. If we have a God who can do anything, anything, then, as the scriptures say, or maybe it's just Kirk Franklin, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We're more than a conqueror. Can I get a witness? That's what he says. You don't have to. You don't have to we've not trained you. You're not ready to respond to that, but Kirk Franklin says it. Um, so, we're getting into this stuff. We're seeing what God can do through us to train us, to change us, to give us the broader, more full perspective that he has of the world that we are in and, and help to kind of make up. We started by talking about how we delight, we delight in the Lord. 
We're not just on a spiritual diet. We're not just trying to lose 10 or 15. We're not here to get some little trick to get a little bit more godly, a little bit more clean spiritually. No, 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 no. We're here to delight. We're here to feast on what God's given us. In Psalm 1, we talk about the tree planted by streams of living water that yields its fruit in its season. What is that man that's like that tree, that woman that is like that tree that's producing its fruit, that's leaf does not wither? His delight is in the law of the Lord. The law meaning the words and the ways of the Lord. On his law, he meditates daily. Then we talked about the Psalm 2 where it's talking about how God is establishing his king and establishing, establishing his kingdom. And the enemies to that kingdom should tremble. And if you're like me, when you read that psalm, you go to it maybe looking for God to smite your enemies, but you realize pretty quickly that, that the way that we live towards him, we end up being his enemy. And Psalm 2 is written towards us rather than towards our enemies more often than not. And then last week we went to Psalm 23, probably the most famous of the psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You may have heard that psalm before. And we talked about how God has promised to be with us in our suffering. And he promised that we will have no suffering. He promises to be with us in our suffering. If somebody promises you something different, I just, I just quiz you. Read the scripture. Read the people that are highlighted as these big heroes of the faith. And tell me which of them you would want to trade lives with. <laughs> If you know the scriptures very well, quickly you're going to be like, ooh, uh, no. <laughs> Not just because penicillin wasn't invented, but like all of those people suffered terribly, terribly. And yet God promised to be their peace in the storm, to be their shepherd so that they shall not want, to set a table before them in the presence of, of their enemies. Though that we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because he's with us. Oh man, you will never get to the bottom of how just how comforting that psalm is. Today we're going to switch the numbers. We're going to go to Psalm 32. And in Psalm 32, he addresses some harder stuff. Last week it was hard. We were talking about how you're going to suffer and how Christ is going to walk with you through that suffering. And yet, Psalm 32, it's addressing some hard stuff too. It's maybe poking you in a place that's a little sensitive today. But I think it's very important. Not only has it been given to us as scripture, but it's also very important in answering some very specific questions. One of the questions it answers is, how do you become that tree in Psalm 1? Psalm 1 talking about us becoming this tree and the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Is that saying that if you're good, God blesses you? And if you're evil, He curses you? Well, yeah. But the trick to that, the hitch in that scheme is that none of us are righteous. No, not one. We're going to be trees just based on our own action. We're all going to be chaff. So where does the tree come from? We'll see that in Psalm 32. But also, Psalm 32 addresses a very real part of being a human. Certainly being a Christian, but of being a human. It's the question, the, the problem of 
guilt of shame. Of living your life knowing how you've lived your life. And what do we do with it? Psalm 32 starts this way. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Oh, that's pretty. It's talking about the way in which we come to God. We don't come to God clean. We come to God to be clean. And blessed are those that have been forgiven. Blessed are those who have been clean from their transgressions, their sins, their iniquity, and their deceit. But that's not really where a lot of us live. That's an open statement of the gospel, and we'll get back to it in just a second. But that is not where a lot of us live. Most of us who are Christians, even though we've been saved by Christ, are often going back to our sin. We're choosing again to live in rebellion to God. And when we do, we encounter what the rest of this psalm feels like. See, and blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, but then in verse 3 it says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away. It's a hard left turn. Here we are celebrating, and now we're talking about our bones falling apart. Through my groaning all day long, groaning, that's not a good word. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now, If you've been a believer for any length of time, you probably are going to know what these verses are describing. Maybe not, maybe just a little bit, but probably. And also, at Hope Church, we are encouraging all the city to come and enjoy what we're doing here. That means, belong before you believe, and it also means that we're hoping, praying, that there are people this morning or here that are listening to this that are not Christians. They're going to help us with our skepticism as we help them with our faith. But those people here that are here this morning hearing us talk about what may sound like a little bit of inside baseball and how to deal with guilt. Let me, let me just push you a little bit and say that what this is dealing with is actually something that is a pretty strong evidence for there being a God. Not foolproof, proof, no such thing, but hard evidence that there is a God. And here's what I mean by that. It's describing for us the difficulty of living though we have disobeyed God. If there's no God, why can't you just get past that? There's a great book. It's a long book, but it is a good book if you can get through it uh, by a guy named Fyodor Dostoevsky. If you can say that clearly and well, God bless you, I can't. Uh, But he wrote a book called Crime and Punishment. In the book, Main character, Rodion Rashkolnikov. When you're reading the book, you can just say sailboat. Like, you don't have to say it in your own head. You can say whatever you want. So I don't know how to pronounce it, but he's the main character of the book. In this book, the guy is an educated guy, very poor, and decides, because he believes that there is no God, that he can do as he wills. He's going to be like Napoleon and just have his will change the world around him. Because he's poor and this wicked pawnbroker lady has money, he's going to kill her and he's going to take his money and he's going to do it because he gets to decide. And it happens in the first part of the book. He does it. 
And the whole rest of the book is Dostoevsky showing us what happens when you try to thumb your nose at the moral universe, the moral order that God has put in place. You just can't do it. It makes sense to say you can do whatever you want if there is no God, and yet, when we try to live that way, we fall apart. So doesn't it make more sense to say that there is a moral code, a moral standard that we're all under? And where would such a thing come from? This, this psalm is arguing that whoever you are, your guilt is going to come down upon you when you're in sin. I think that's a strong evidence for God, and I think it's also a very clear way that you and I as Christians are supposed to uh, think about our world and how we're supposed to order ourselves. Because verse 3 assumes, it assumes that though you have been, uh, you've encountered at some level God's forgiveness, you've sinned against Him, and you're hiding. That's what the enemy always wants to do. As soon as you sin against him, he wants to convince you that you can somehow hide. Hide what you've done and hide from God. Can I tell you what that's like? It's like this little picture. Oh, goodness. Father's Day, you're going to forgive me. I'm going to use my baby as an illustration. That's our third. That's Grace. She's playing peekaboo. Now, she knows that I know that she's there. That's part of what's fun about it. If she actually thought when she closed her eyes like that that the world disappeared, she would scream in terror. <laughs> the point of the game is that she knows I'm still there. But when you're playing peekaboo as a little kid, hiding, there was a time when that's how she would hide. <laughs> we play hide and seek and the older girls would go hide in a closet somewhere or something and Grace would just close her eyes. <laughs> I can't see you, you can't see me. <laughs> foolish. Funny, but Foolish. Okay, are you and I not doing something similar with God? Submit that we are. I think we put our hands over our eyes and we assume that somehow he won't know. Somehow he won't see. Somehow we can hide. And yet when we do, our bones waste away and we groan. There's a guy named Ray Ortland Jr., writer, pastor in Nashville, Tennessee. He wrote this. He said, people living with unconfessed sin groan. They groan about this. They groan about that. But really, they are admitting that they still have sins unconfessed. Their strength is dried up. They're sluggish, unmotivated, always looking for ways to minimize their obedience because the joy of obedience is gone. Now, I think he hit the nail on the head. So the reasons that you may feel like you can't serve or don't want to serve, and that's not really what this is about. What this is about primarily is throwing off all the sin that entangles so you can run the race that he's laid out for you. But have you, do you think that maybe there is a misapplication of the gospel in your life that's leading you to hide sin, to unconfess it, keep it away, making you scared to confess it. When I was in a seminary, I was working for this guy. Uh, there was this group. And they, they were in the, sort of the upline of, of, of Ford Motor Company. They had a plant there in Louisville, Kentucky. And we were building the seat brackets, that the, uh, your driver-passenger seat where the cushion goes. The bracket on top of it, you can move it forward, move it back, that thing. We were making that. And my job at the end of the assembly line was that I was the inspector. 
That sounds better than it was. My job was just to move the stuff at the end of the thing. And I would take a Sharpie and make sure all the screws were in place. And I'd take a little torque wrench and make sure that the little thing that holds your seatbelt on was screwed on right. And I would check part of it, flip it, and check the other part. I had this big metal pan that they would slide down on. Take it, flip it, and then when it was right, I'd take it and throw it into a crate. That was my whole job, 10 hours a day. And these things were 40, 50, 60 pounds based on how expensive they were. And I was talking to my buddy one time, and I flipped one. I'm talking to him, and it lands on my finger in a little tray and just smashed my finger. And, of course, you're like a dude on the line. Like, you're in an assembly plant. You're not supposed to, like, ah! You know, you just sort of just roll with it. And that's what I did. I just rolled with it. But by the end of that day and beginning of the next day, uh, it was getting worse, not better. And I just assumed I had cracked something in there. But, you know, it heals, I guess. And so I bought, I went to Walgreens and bought a little, like, splint thing and just, okay, we'll just keep rolling with it. But that didn't fix it. And in fact, it was so painful that I couldn't even get the thing on because my finger was swelling. It was like a cartoon injury. <laughs> like, it just immediately started swelling really big and got red and, uh, because it was infected. And so I tried to work it the next day, but just eventually had to go tell the foreman guy, like, man, I'm sorry, I hurt my finger and it was here, so <laughs> you got to pay for it. And so he sent me to the uh, workers' comp doctor, which... This may have just been this workers' comp doctor, but he didn't strike me as like the all-A's medical school doctor for the the workers' comp guys. But anyway, he just had this mill for all these guys, and he was setting fingers and whatnot. And he saw it and just took one look, and he was like, yeah, man, your finger's infected. We're going to have to lance it. No, you're not. (laughs) This thing was hurting. You could blow on it, it would hurt. It gets really sensitive, especially your fingers. got all those little pain receptors or whatever in there. And when it gets swollen because of infection, it gets crazy sensitive. And you're going to poke it with a pen? No. Yes, I am. Hold still. And then, bloop. And I try to not like, ah. But inside, I was doing that. And then he had to squeeze it. And that was even more painful. But he had to get all the junk out. And then you put your finger in the iodine or whatever, and it bubbles out like crazy. And then you're good. You go back to work. You don't even go home. Because you're good. Now, when we have unconfessed sin, that's what happens. We swell up, man. And it gets really sensitive. It gets really painful. What do we do with that? Well, if it's going to feel like lancing it, maybe. But look at verse 5. He's just talked about groaning and his bones wasting away. And then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what did God do? Did he put him on a payment plan? All right, we're going to have to set something up here. You're in a messed up way. We're going to have to defer payments, but you will pay, my young friend. No. I confess he forgave. He forgave. He forgave the iniquity of my sin. Brothers and sisters, the answer to this is the same answer. Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. Here, the answer is always the gospel. We are, we are misapplying the cross when we are hiding our sin and just letting it get worse and worse and worse. Letting our fingers get more and more swollen and that infection go further and further down. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes the cross so perfectly clear. It says, For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. God made Christ 
become our sin. Though he knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ taking upon himself all of our sin. So that we're free to receive all of his righteousness. Standing before God now. Clean. But your sins are like scarlet. They shall be whiter than snow. How? 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 By the cross. That's what happened on the cross. Your sin, the sin that makes you groan, he groaned for on the cross. You say your bones are wasting away in your unconfessed sin? His bones. As he's hanging from a cross. Not just struck with the cat of nine tails. Not just inserted the crown of thorns. Not just shoved in with a spear and nailed. But experiencing before God the fullness of the wrath that you and I endure in some little part when we try and walk around with our unconfessed sin. Because of what He has done, we can now stand before Him declared clean. Not clean, declared clean. There's a transaction that's taken place. You are a former debtor, but a debtor no more. So read again those first two verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Amen. That's what the gospel is promising for you and for me. You bring that stuff forward, and then he lances it. Now, here's what I mean by lances it. There's another verse in scripture, James 5.16, that says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God forgives your sin totally, completely. You die right in, you're just brought into his presence. Listen, he's this most merciful. You die right after you're saved. Even if you haven't confessed every picadillo, you die right after you're saved, and he brings you right before his presence. But our God loves us enough that when we bring to him our pain, he heals it. Even if sometimes that medicine is a little bit bitter, and I think probably the most bitter version is when we have to confess to other people our sin. Now, what do we mean by that? Now, Hope Church doesn't have a confessional. We don't have like a formal way you go about confessing your sins. But the scripture is clear. We do have the ability to hide from God. We're not really hiding from him, but we try. We do attempt to close ourselves off from his holiness. How holy his holiness is and how sinful our sinfulness is. So what the enemy does is he isolates us. And he deceives us. It's not that bad, you should do it again. You you, you think that God doesn't like that, but you're not really sure. How well do you know the Bible? Just continue. But when we confess our sin to one another, then God brings to bear all of the fruits of the Spirit that are being displayed by your brothers and sisters in the church. Why do you not want to confess? I think, again, that comes back to a misapplication of the gospel. 
Why don't you want to confess to one another? Well, because it's shameful. I tell you what I did, you're going to look at me and you're going to judge me. If you're close enough to me for me to feel like I can confess to you, there's probably some love there. And I'm scared that if I confess to you, that love's going to go away. Because you're going to know me truly. And in knowing me, you're going to draw back. Wait, God didn't. When he knew your sin and you confessed your sin to him, he went through heaven and hell itself to bring you to himself. Let us, as God's people who have been changed by that gospel, show you the love you receive from God through his people when you confess your sin. There's those in this room, myself included, who've confessed to one another here. And what we've found has been grace. Grace. Love. People I've confessed to here with my sin have been so quick to tell me, I'm not better than you. We're going to get you through this. I'm not better than you. We're all sinners together before God. And they love me through it. Man, nothing makes you want to turn away from your sin more than realizing there's another option. This sin that I thought would make me happy, that's not what's going to make me happy. And there's something else available to me. (laughs) What kind of joy is that? Of course you're going to go away singing. Okay, Ray Orland Jr. again. He makes it so clear. He's so helpful here. He says, in some churches, nobody admits anything. Confession would be foolhardy because it would be used as evidence against rather than for a person. If the de- uh, I'm sorry, if not dead, dead already, such a church will eventually die. But God welcomes all of us sinners to confess and to get free forever. What he says is that your confession, instead of showing you that you're not a Christian... Proves that you are a Christian. If we're content to live as a church of individuals who just do whatever we want and don't actually encounter one another's lives, we will die as a church, not grow. As we confess to one another, find love and healing from one another, then God builds his church. Verse 6 says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. What does it say? This is what the enemy is always trying to tell you. If you confess that, it's all over. Whatever you like, whatever you love, whatever you think about yourself, it's done. You confess and it's destruction. Should you fear that? And verse 5 talks about your, your repentance. Verse 6 meets you right there and says, To the rush of great waters, you're not going to reach you. Your hiding place is now in Him. He is going to preserve you from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What crazy praise is that? Again, it's God shepherding you, saying, Listen, if you, if you confess far from being condemned, you're going to be embraced. This is what he says. This is a good father. Verse 8 and 9. I will instruct you. I'm going to teach you the way you should go. 
I'm going to counsel you with my eye upon you. That's not a slave master. It's a father. And then, again, depending on how flexible you are, depending on how quick you are to repent, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. It says in Hebrews, every good father disciplines his children. And this verse is saying, what kind of discipline are you going to need? Sometimes my girls, specific girls, specific situations, you can just look at them. Something they've done. And they just melt. Oh, daddy. Oh, no. I shouldn't have done it. And they're going to change. Their repentance comes at a look. Some of my girls, in some situations, it doesn't matter what you do. They want to double down. So I've got to double down. I can't just let them continue in their sin. And sometimes it continues until it gets hard. But I win because I'm dad and I've got to. Same thing with the father. He loves you enough to discipline you. He loves you enough to bring you along. And if you're going to be a stubborn mule, you're going to have to be curbed with bit or bridle. But you don't have to be that way. Gain some understanding and follow. And then he puts it all back together again in verse 10 and 11. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Listen, you continue down that road, you continue with your groaning, with your bones wasting. Many are your sorrows. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Not impresses the Lord. Not indebts the Lord to him with his good works. Trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. If this forgiveness lands, really lands for you, do you know what your response is going to be? (laughs) Gladness, rejoicing, shouting for joy, because what was dirty and broken and destroyed has been remade, has been loved. Though your sins be like scarlet, they are whiter than snow. If you'll just open your eyes to him. Oh, there it is. If you'll just open your eyes to him. He's right there. He wants to to bring you in. He wants to clean you up. He wants to get you back to work with him. It's Father's Day again. I'm showing you my kids. That's not manly enough. The captain, he wants to get you back on the court. He wants you to play again. To just be with him again. Won't you? Won't you? What stands in your way? Your pride? Your fear? Why this fear and unbelief? Has not the father put to grief his only son for us? Oh, he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you. Come back to him. Lord God and Heavenly Father, right now, right now, Lord, meet us where we are. Meet us where we are, Lord. Don't let us stay in this unconfessed sin. Don't let us stay in our own personal, self-made torment. When you have sent your son to die for us, Lord, would you please, would you please remind us of your gospel? 
still small voice, knock on the heart, trumpet blowing, whatever it takes for each of the individuals in this room, Father, would you most effectively, most skillfully draw them to yourself? Non-believers for the first time, Father, believers who are hiding from you, draw us to yourself. Let us find in you healing, gladness, Father, rejoicing, even in many great waters, Lord, protection. Do this, Father, for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.